This is a recording from a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. How are you guys? <laughs> Good. I'm overjoyed to be with you guys. This guy's amazing. Look at that guy. Gosh. Light Church and Park Hill Church basically launched a week apart. Christmas Eve was Park Hill Church and then New Year's Eve, right? Or the day? Okay, two weeks apart. There you go. Same diff. Same difference. Um, but yeah, it's exciting to be on the similar journey. I, uh, the, the, illust- the, the analogy, the picture that keeps coming to my mind, I'm not going to say it's like a vision from heaven or anything, but it's just this picture, is um, the interior painting of like a kitchen. We have a three-year-old river who's downstairs. When we painted our kitchen, uh, just finished uh, remodeling it, half, half DIY, half pro friends involved, you know, those kinds of projects. Well, we were painting the wall, and then the three-year-old would grab a paint roller and just start making a mess. And it was the right color, so I'm like, hey. And he thinks he's, like, doing, ama- he thinks he's doing amazing things, but he's just not. He's, he's making a mess. Um, but, like, we have this moment. We smile at each other. I'm like, yeah, you're, you are fulfilling your design. You're making the paint. You're, you're remodeling a kitchen, and you're three. Um, and he thinks he's just being like daddy. And it's like this moment. I feel like that's how the father looks at us when we like, let's, let's plant a church, let's preach the gospel, let's, like, let's make the world uh, filled with Jesus' brand of love and joy and goodness and preach the gospel and bring people to repentance and do this thing, and God's like, I don't even need you. But I love that you're doing this, and you are, you're taking so much pleasure, and you're looking into my face, and I'm looking into yours, and we're doing this together. And my three-year-old would like take randomly, he'll put down the painter and take up like a sanding block and start sanding the front of like our stainless steel fridge. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, don't do that. And I redirect him back onto the paint or I just put a movie on for him to distract him or something. And it's just like, I don't know. I just feel like it's, it's like the father. And we're doing this and we're uh, planting churches in the city. And, and he's just like, man, you guys, I, you guys make beautiful messes and I love you. I'm going to fill you with my spirit. We're going to get this done together. It's like, whatever. It's just such a joy to be part of what God is doing. And you're a part of it. You're part of the first year of light. And uh, that's, just, that's just like a well-done kind of thing. Uh, so I, I applaud you for buying into the vision and for being a part of what Jesus is doing. I know this church is already involved in many amazing justice relief efforts um, to relieve brokenness in places of deep pain in the world in Jesus' name. So just well done. Well done on all that. So I just wanted to say that and uh, just introduce myself. My name is Evan. My wife, Sandy, sitting in the back. Can you raise your hand? I'm, I never do this. There she is. <sighs> Yeah, so she's in the back. We have, like I said, a couple of kids downstairs. We have five kids total. Uh, three of them are elsewhere. But um, yeah, so again, like Benji said, my wife and I lead Park Hill Church downtown in San Diego. We meet in Liberty Station, and it's a joy to worship Jesus together in that place every Sunday. Um, and yeah, also, like he said, we are journeying through Matthew, just like you, right along with you. Uh, so I preached this sermon this morning at our church, and now I'm here to deliver it for you. And Benji's going to do that for us later this month on on June 24th. He's going to he's going to preach here at night, and before he'll be he will have already preached it uh, with us, which is pretty cool. We're like we're like siblings, sibling churches. It's very cool. So um, yeah, I'm just going to jump into the text. So I'm not going to read it all up front. I'm going to read it in pieces. We're going to spend most of the time on the front half because I think because of who we are and where we live, we need to spend most of the time on the front half. Uh, It's all about storing up treasure on earth and storing up wealth. And then how that is connected to anxiety is how we're going to land the plane. Uh, Because I I really think Jesus has full-on shalom in his heart for you. Uh, peace for you. And uh, because he's the peacemaker at the cross who brought righteousness and justice together and said, come enter my shalom. Uh, But in order to follow Jesus, we obey him because he's not just Lord and Savior in some cosmic sense, but he's an earthy master teacher that you obey and find the art of human flourishing through his teaching. Um, So let's just dive right in. Today, uh, Jesus is literally messing with your stuff like your money and your possessions and mine. So uh, we're going to see, basically, according to Jesus, we're going to see wealth. First, put up the little list thing. Wealth is a problem. Uh, 
Wealth is a problem. According to Jesus, what we're going to see is that wealth is a problem, so distribute. we're going to distribute our excess as followers of Jesus. We're called to do that. And then, and then, and then, watch your worry vanish. So when we understand what Jesus sees, when we see the way he does about the stuff that we have, there's a direct connection to anxiety relief, according to Jesus. And then um, that's also in tandem with the kingdom coming. So that's pretty interesting. We're just going to walk through the text, though. Here we go. Uh, open to Matthew 6, verse 19. And if you absolutely don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen, too. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy. If you have another version, it might say moths and corrosion or rust. And where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. <laughs> okay, Jesus just goes there. Um, so, okay, Matthew is writing these things down in an ancient time when it was fairly normal to go to bed not knowing when or how tomorrow's meals would show up. Normal. Um, and it's in that culture where Matthew says really emphatically in the Greek, basically he says, stop storing up for yourselves. It's not some hypothetical warning. It's more of a command to stop doing things one way so that you might begin to do something differently. And that command is about treasures on earth. And treasures, you know what a treasure is. It's something uh, we keep because we value it. So having something that you treasure is a normal part of being human. That's normal. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, have a little or a lot. Everyone knows what it means to treasure something. Even my three-year-old, who doesn't understand what money is, he's treasured his blue blanket for two years. Uh, he knows what a treasure is. Even Tom Hanks had Wilson, you know, little hand volleyball guy. So there's nothing inherently wrong with valuing things. The scriptures, especially the Proverbs of Israel, have plenty to say about the general wisdom in saving your money, taking care of your home, and even leaving stuff for your ancestors. Totally wise, totally good. Uh, but here, in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus specifies the types of treasures we are not to store up. In his words, treasures on earth. Okay, And by this, he means the kinds of things that we value but are finite. They poof into smoke, inevitably. They perish. Okay, Obvious examples, money, possessions. But other examples that aren't so obvious can be like, like relational networks and status and reputation and careers and even your precious Instagram account is destined to go the way of MySpace or the way of the buffalo or whatever. According to Jesus, all these things are finite because they can be destroyed by moths and break-ins and rust and time and corrupted hard drives, right? So listen, Jesus wants us to take great peace in the reality that your stuff is going to vanish, it's gone. That thing you love is gone. It's going to be gone. The literal idea behind the Greek word there is they will disappear. That destruction isn't just it's going to turn into a pile of ash. It's literally turning into a nothing in that Greek word. Uh, and Jesus says that's inevitable, okay? One way or another, your stuff is doomed. It's not that your bank account is vulnerable to identity theft, which I discovered last year in a horrible way, it's, or, or that your car is vulnerable to breaking down or your stuff is vulnerable to theft. No, Jesus is saying it's more than vulnerable. It's actually doomed, okay? So it's perfectly sensible that Jesus offers his disciples an alternative, and he says, no, instead, store up treasure in heaven where it's invulnerable, so now, right away, I may have triggered some of you. How many of you grew up in church? You're, you're familiar with Christian Christians? You're familiar with church? Wow. Only a couple. That's amazing. Oh, okay. I'm just trying to figure out who I'm working with here. That's good. So, so if you grew up in church, you probably heard treasures in heaven as like a phrase a lot. Uh, like I usually heard it when I was told to clean my room or something. Like, clean your room. Well, do I get an allowance? Not treasures in heaven or whatever. Like, and so it was usually like this thing where, like, it's like if, if, if I hated doing the thing right now, I just, oh, treasures in heaven. But no, it's not, it's not a statement. Jesus isn't making a statement about eventual reward in the afterlife here. N.T. Wright puts it like this, and it's a quote on the screen. As with other references to heaven and earth, we shouldn't imagine he means, don't worry about this life, get ready for the next one. No, heaven is where, it's where God is right now and where 
if you learn to love and serve God right now, you will have treasure in the present there, not just in the future. So Jesus isn't just talking about some system where you have to abstain from valuable things in this life so that you can finally get the really cool stuff in the next life or something. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew uses the word heaven as like a catch-all phrase that's synonymous. It also means God or God's space. So when Matthew says to be rewarded in heaven, he's talking about to be rewarded in God now. Things of eternal investment in the here and now. He's like, do that. Do the things of eternal investment. Do the things God desires. Do the things that are on his heart. Lean into his heart instead of things that are perishable that will vanish, like financial security uh, and having stuff. So your treasure on earth is destined to go up in smoke, but your treasure in God is not. This is beautiful, and this is the grounding of peace for an anxiety-drenched generation. Many of us are millennials in this room. I can just see it. Some of you are, are younger than that. And because of the way information comes at us and stuff is advertised to us and 20% off coupons come in our email, even though we unsubscribe, like because of all of this, we are constantly newsfeeded into, newsfed, if you would, into anxiety constantly. And the grounding for peace is rooted deeply in this understanding of what eternity is really made of, okay? What eternity is really built out of. Jesus wants you to see the real stuff. He really does. Uh, So your earthly treasure is doomed. That should make you smile. The stuff that you loved and that you wanted and that you got, and it's doomed. Yeah, that should make you. And then Jesus makes this profound statement, Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So that's kind of the why behind it all. An easy example of this, one word. I don't know how this word makes you feel. Bitcoin. I don't know how that makes you feel. I don't know what, what, I don't know what that made you think in your mind, but for thousands upon thousands of first-time millennial investors, uh, they learned what it meant to, to try to invest in stock through Bitcoin, which is literally nothing. Like, Bitcoin is literally nothing. I don't know if you heard of it. It's like ones and zeros in a digital universe somewhere, and people are pouring millions of dollars and in investing in this new stock, this new form of currency that no one, very few actually know how it even works. Um, and I admit, like, just full transparency, like, I bought in. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, in, I'm in that whole crowd. So last, last December, I went for it, and, and I talked with my wife, and we talked about a certain dollar amount. I'm like, oh, it's, it's peaking. It's probably 2018's the year, whatever. And, and, I'm, and so we agreed on a certain amount. Unfortunately, it was right at the peak. If you look at the last six months of Bitcoin growth, you won't see growth since December. Um, and let me tell you, here's how it worked for me. Before December 2017, I had never picked up a stock, like the stock exchange in the paper ever. Like it was never even a temptation. Why? I had no investment there, but since December 2017, I've installed the Coinbase app on my phone, diversified my crypto accounts into three different forms, and now I check it every other day. And when I forget to check after a day, I'm like, oh, shoot. And I check it again, I'm like, oh, and I get like this urge. <laughs> Uh, and honestly, why? Well, because I now have some treasure there. And so, it all, so my heart is there. I, a piece of my heart is there. And it's the way the human heart works. It commands a part of my attention. And so when I'm 2% down this week from last, it affects me. Uh, which is, for better or worse, usually worse. So another way of saying this, And you may have heard these statements. I think they're spot on. The way you spend your money reveals what's most important to you. Pretty accurate. Or another way, if you want to know someone's true character, look at their bank statement. I think that's pretty accurate. I think that's pretty accurate. Jesus is getting right up in y'all's biz right now. Like deeply in, in the part of you that's most, in America, we tend not to really give everyone all the information about our finances because that's like, a deep secret, that's like a deep family secret in my core for some reason. Um, 
So Jesus is pitting two ways of living against each other. Over here, the valuing of money and stuff, and over here, the valuing of God, and he's saying they don't go together. That's a pretty binary, black and white, either or kind of statement, isn't it, Jesus? I mean, geez. Um, but I believe Jesus does this intentionally. He's saying they can't coexist. I mean, he says it explicitly. Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Man, so hard to like really internalize that. I think we say we believe things. I think there are things we say we value. We believe we value things. Like, I value this and this and this, and those are my values. We can say that. Maybe that would be accurate. Maybe you would be accurate in what you say you value. But Jesus is saying there's a way more accurate and revealing way to find out our values. And it's by posing the simple yet terrifying question, how did you spend your money in May? That's Jesus on what's actually going on in your heart. That's the Jesus question tonight. Uh, it's so important to keep in mind where we as Americans find ourselves in the story of humanity. So just a couple, couple stats, just, just to get our bearings. I know most of us know this, but um, anyways, it helps. More than one billion people in the world live on less than $1 per day. About three billion live on less than $2 per day. Between 12 and 20% of Americans live below what we call our poverty line. So let's think about that in our minds, and I want us to think for a moment about your stuff, my stuff, what you have, what's accessible to you, what you and I just take for granted throughout the day. Even in a room of this size, it's like medium size, uh, I doubt that there's any of us in this room who spent $7 or less last week. And I'm, that's, I've spent, I spent way more than $7 last week. Uh, many of us arrived here in a car or even own more than one car. I'm preaching off a multi-hundred-dollar iPad right now. I'm preaching the, the word off of this. Um, we have smartphones and streaming subscriptions. Most of us eat semi-regularly at restaurants where we're waited on by paid staff who we tip on top of the requested price of our meal, which is not normal in most first-world countries. Tipping is weird in England and France. It's not expected, but here it is. And we pay for cup after cup of identical lattes, at identical coffee shops that are all around us that are great. We rent or own a place in San Diego. Let's not even talk about the way we choose to clothe ourselves. And then our homes that we love and live in, we get to make choices all the time. Let's swap that piece of decor for this other thing I saw on my $500 smartphone or whatever. Like, that's just, that's just our world. No shame. I'm in that world, too. We're all in that world, okay? And so, uh, of course, though, I want to say that we've all experienced hardship. Financial hardship is still very real. Um, I don't want to undermine that or downplay that, okay? We don't all have it easy. But there's a difference between most of us here and the rest of the world. Uh, when most of us talk about here being poor, we're talking about being poor in a context that's already outrageously wealthy compared to most human beings on the earth, and that's my point. And I think it's an important one. Compared to a huge majority of the world's population, most of us are rich. And I think the common American tendency is to immediately dismiss ourselves from the discussion around wealth in the Sermon on the Mount because maybe the single person or the young family or the college student surviving on ramen you know, we can, we can imagine ourselves poor, through our life, though our lifestyle would actually be considered luxurious to the majority world. And it's like the upper class looks at the super rich and thinks of themselves as poor. The middle class looks at the upper class and thinks of themselves poor, and on and on and on down the ladder it goes. And yet, if you eat food or have a car or drove in a car or chose your home decor, or even one of those things, then you're rich by global standards. Most of us are rich, but the teacher we follow was not. And that's a paradox that we need to get familiar with tonight. Because like seven billion humans today, several, sorry, like several billion humans today, the Jesus we follow seems to have had nothing. 
I mean, the food he ate, he received by, like, farming, fishing, donation, or the random one-off, like, 5,000 loaf miracle. Um, there's a story where Jesus, there's a story where Jesus makes a point about money, and he literally has to go, anybody got a coin? Like, he has to ask for a coin from the crowd. Someone, like, tosses him a coin, and, like, he's like, see this coin? And then he uses the coin as an object, because he didn't have a coin. That's our Messiah, um, of course, Jesus knew what it was like to be wealthy. He saw huge homes every day that was in Jerusalem or whatever. When, while he was in Jerusalem, he did. He interacted with wealthy Jews all the time in the Gospels. Luxury was not some far-off concept to Jesus. Everyone knew about Herod, okay? But Jesus warned against luxury. And this is important. As with all the radical teachings of Jesus, if you've been with Benji for the last several weeks, you've seen radical teaching of Jesus after radical teaching of Jesus. It's like, it's like the spinal tap, this one goes to 11. You know that? Like, Jesus is an amplifier that doesn't go just one to 10 volume. He goes to 11. He goes all the way. He finds another, another click. He takes things to the extreme. That's how Jesus works. As with all of his teachings, Jesus wants his disciples to follow his example to do as he did, and Jesus requires simplicity in his followers. Simplicity, worshipful simplicity, because Jesus himself exemplified simplicity every single day. Jesus requires us to give to the poor because he himself was poor. And now listen, it's worth saying, like, at this point, that Jesus does not require, like, slavish imitation, okay? you will not become like Jesus in every literal sense. Here's what I mean. Obvious examples. Jesus was a man. How many of you here aren't men? Good. You can follow Jesus. Just the same. Okay? Uh, Jesus was a Galilean Jew. How many of you are Jews? Any Jewish people? Fantastic. Were you from Galilee? No. So that's okay. You can follow Jesus too. That's the point. <laughs> the point is that you, there's no slavish imitation Jesus doesn't say, be exactly like everything you read in the text about me. Um, if, another one, he was like a stonemason, but I don't know how many of you do construction. It doesn't matter. You can still follow Jesus if you don't. So all this to say, Jesus' specific choice of living in deliberate poverty is not necessarily an imitation requirement for us in the specific sense. Just... A hilarious example. I did a concert in East County, and after the worship, it was a worship time, and after the worship, these two guys came up to me. It looked like they hadn't changed their clothes in five years, and they had, like, wooden staves, literally, and beards that were epic, and they came up to me like, dude, bro, like, total San Diego dude, bro. <laughs> they're like, dude, bro, great worship, man. They talked like normal San Diegans, but they look like they're straight out of, like, a, a Bible movie. And, and I'm like, what's your story, guys? And they're like, oh, we've just been following Jesus the way he told us to. Like, I'm like, whoa, what does that mean? He's like, yeah, well, we just go from town to town, sometimes hitchhiking, live on donations, and we make sure if the town doesn't accept us, we shake the dust of our sandals off at the town, and we just make sure we live not on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of <laughs> Like, they're fully, literally living like the Jesus in the God, like everything they read, they feel they're supposed to obey, okay? Let me tell you just for clearly, that is unnecessary. That's not what I'm advocating tonight. More power to those dudes. I wish them well. <laughs> and it was funny, and it makes for a funny story. Um, and Jesus is not saying we need to imitate him like slavish mimics. But, but... When Jesus embodies a life of simplicity and then specifically teaches us not to store up earthly wealth, we have something very specific to imitate in our context as his people. Jesus' teaching and life together of not storing up wealth is a command for those who seek to follow him. So when Jesus commands us not to store up treasure on earth, he's not telling us to stop like being responsible and having a bank account and like taking care of our bills. No, it's really our understanding of our money and our stuff that he's wanting to reach in and give us peace about those things. So it's our relationship with money and stuff that has to change. Why? Why is that so important? Why is that the heart issue? Um, okay, this is where it gets down to the nitty gritty. 
because right in line with the Old Testament prophets, Jesus' Bible, did you know this? Jesus' Bible was what we call our Old Testament. And he read all of the Old Testament. They didn't call it Old Testament. It was the Word of God. It still is. And so Jesus read prophet after prophet after prophet, calling Israel away from injustice and selfish, gratifying ways of living. And, and, and they were calling him into the kind of other-centered generosity that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was demonstrating by choosing a people Israel that were far off from him. And so God's righteousness was God's caring, compassionate heart for his people, and God's justice was always God taking concrete actions to save people that were far away, even at personal cost to God. It's ultimately exemplified at the cross, right? At the cross, God went the ultimate distance from the highest heavens to the lowest, most scorned places of earth and the worst suffering we could dish out. God went from there to here to disadvantage himself for the sake of your advantage and for the sake of my advantage and to bring the leper into healing and to bring the widow into family and to bring the poor to the table of the king. This is what God did, and this is what the Bible calls justice. God is just. He'll get rid of all the evil so that the far-off ones have room at his table. And so if you are righteous and if you are just, what that means is you're answering, you're saying yes to God and becoming like him and disadvantaging yourself for the sake of those who are far off. Okay? This is how we follow Jesus. Hopefully that connection is clear. In God's economy, in God's economy, those with much are called to give and care for those with little. That's just how this whole thing works. That's how heavenly treasure is stored up. That's how earthly treasure is avoided. That's the difference. So according to Tom Oden, uh, he writes about Augustine, and Augustine has this epic line. I love it. There, can you put the Augustine line? The bellies of the poor are much safer storerooms than barns. <laughs> so Augustine had a correct Jesus-like view of his stuff. He had extra food. Well, rather than storing it in my fridge, I'm going to store it in my hungry neighbor's belly. <laughs> That's the just place for his excess. Powerful. Powerful. So Odin goes on to say rather bluntly that the man who stored up his own goods disregarding the hungry, was, quote, a rich fool and poor in soul. And then the mic drops or whatever. Uh, so, in fact, one commentator, I love this one. <laughs> this makes me laugh every time, genuinely, from my belly. One commentator who wrote on Matthew 6, he made space in the footnotes of his second printing to say, to repent of missing this in his first printing. <laughs> so, like, he literally said this. In the first edition... I did not sufficiently stress this liquidation of assets, this for the sake of the poor meaning of the text. And now I see myself called to investigate a new kind of economics. Jesus challenges his readers on so many fronts. He's constantly, as the idiom goes, in your face. <laughs> I love that. In, a, in your face in an academic commentary. Makes you laugh. I love it. Jesus' teachings are in your face. Um, the early church clearly agreed. Uh, James wrote this, now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who wasn't opposing you. Yikes. Like, happy Sunday, church. Like, it's intense. So the warning against wealth and luxurious living is well all over the scriptures. And in light of this, uh, another guy I read this week, Scott McKnight. We're using him a lot for our journey through Matthew. Um, and he looked at the landscape of Christianity and made the simple observation. And he included himself. It's important to include ourselves in humility. 
in this stuff. He included himself and he said this, the irony of wealthy followers of Jesus cannot be ignored. Wow. So since most, if not all of us here would qualify as wealthy by global standards, what does this mean? What does this mean for us? Listen, the good shepherd is lovingly calling us forward into Christ's love. This is not a wrathful shepherd desiring to beat the sheep or whatever. That's not what this is. This is Jesus who went further down into disadvantaged states than we ever could for us. And then saying, hey, you, you, you who want to follow me and see my beauty and goodness, who want to see the art of human flourishing spread all over North County and South County and East County, San Diego, you, follow me in disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of the have lesses around you. And watch my shalom fill your life. Watch, watch anxiety dissolve with your earthly possessions. Watch. It's connected. This is the good shepherd. So what do we do? What does this mean for us? And here's, here's like a personal practical tip from Jesus. It's in verse 22. Write in your Bibles. Matthew 6, 22, 23. This is part of the answer. I'll read it. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Uh, this verse is all about seeing those in need, and compassionately responding with our concrete resources. Okay, Evan, how, that, you lost me, Evan. How is it about that? It, it looks like it's about healthy eyes and light and darkness. Isn't this about just like not looking at bad stuff with your eyes and keeping your body clean? Um, kind of, sort of, not really, but sort of, yes. It's actually better than that. I used to think this passage was just about like not looking at porn or something. Uh, like Jesus is talking about earthly treasures in 19 through 21, and they switches to... Make sure your eyes look at the right stuff. And then he switches back to, you can't serve God on money. Suddenly that's super disjointed, I thought. But it's actually way more connected than that. Listen, this is profound. When Jesus talks about the eye as the lamp of the body, he's actually working with ancient science, the science they had in that day. Uh, they didn't have biology like we do today. Uh, they didn't know about photons and even how light works. Uh, they believed in what we now call extra mission theory, which was the common belief that the human eye actually shot out beams. And those beams would interact with stuff, whatever you saw. And what you're seeing was whatever the invisible beams from your eyes were causing to be seen. So they believe your eyes actually put out the, the, the energy of vision instead of receive like we know now. So, so, so imagine that in your mind. And then, and then Jesus uses the Greek, words, the Greek words for healthy and unhealthy. Those Greek words, you know what they actually are mostly used for in Greek literature? Generosity and stinginess. So it's amazing. What Jesus is saying here is if your eyes are beaming, sending beams of generosity out into the world, it reveals in you a body, a soul that is actually a lamp of health. You're beaming generosity. Your soul is full of light. But if your eye is stingy toward the world, then it reveals a soul that's dark and far more likely to be filled with dark lust and greed and evil desire. So speaking very practically, this has powerful implications. If you are, here's practically, basically, if you are actively giving your time and money for, let's just say, let's just make up an organization that liberates the sexually exploited children and adults worldwide. If you're giving towards like an anti-sex trafficking organization, you're giving, you're saving, and you're just, that's, that's on your mind and that's in your wallet. And you're giving it. What this means is that if that's you, then you will be far less likely to give in to that clickbait porn after all. You just will. Your generous eye for those that are being sexually exploited, reveals in you a heart that is actually full of light. Okay? Powerful. And the other side, the dark side, is also true. If you're a person who's generally stingy and selfish, and you're ruled by impulse purchases, and you're self-gratifying with your money and time, chances are you're the kind of person who's generally more susceptible to selfish 
and self-gratifying impulses. Or in Jesus' words, your body is full of darkness. Ominous words, powerful words from the lover of our souls. So, man, it's no wonder that Paul would later write in 1 Timothy 6, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Man, which makes Jesus' very next statement in our text, Matthew 6, 24, super powerful. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Okay, man, you're thinking, Evan, you're like, Evan, come on. Like, how do, what are we doing with this? Like, how do we live this out? Um, how do we wrap our minds around the gravity here, practically obey him, when materialism is literally the water we swim in like fish? We don't even know it's water. We're just swimming. It's everywhere. All the information we see has an advertisement attached to it. It's everywhere. It is our worldview. Um, what do we do? Well, I'll just say a statement and before I put up the slide, um, and I, I'll back it up with the slide, and I'll try to explain. I, I believe, this is helpful for my brain, My brain needs statements like this. I believe that God does not necessarily permit Christians to own stuff. Whoa, you lost me, Evan. That's crazy. What do you mean? Here's what I mean before I lost you. Listen, here's the slide. Part of what it means to follow Jesus, here it is, it's to consider everything we legally own as actually belonging to God. We are simply called to seek his will as to how our wealth should be spent. Lord, have mercy. Give me Christ's vision to see the way he sees about stuff. It's all from him and it's going to him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How to really believe that. I'm going to, um, I'm going to just tell a story about a family in Oregon that has shown me and many others what this looks like. There's this family, uh, in Portland. We got to know them when we were living up there and, uh, they went to our church and, and they literally owned in Eastern Oregon, they owned their own zip code. Not exaggerating. Like, there's a zip code in eastern Oregon that belongs just to them as a, as a family. And, and what they've done with this zip code is, yeah, there's, there's buildings and, res, like, like resort-style getaway homes for some of their kids, but, but it's mostly occupied by pastors and churches that need spiritual refreshment, pastors that are burning out, that need a place to go and be led back to Jesus with their family, with other spiritual mentors. It's this place for ultimate renewal and refreshment that they allow people to use for free. It's just a matter of getting your name on a list. It's amazing what they've done with their wealth. Amazing. And um, they live in the Portland area, and uh, when my brother did his first live acoustic record at our Portland church a decade ago, this family called me, and they said uh, that they found out how much the project cost my brother, and they wanted to send a check. They just found out how much it cost to record their live record, and record his live record. They just paid for it. They just wrote a check uh, because they believed in it, and it was somewhere that they could get behind for the kingdom's sake. Uh, They're just constantly releasing, releasing for the kingdom. Uh, and they told me, Evan, if you know anyone passing through or who needs a place to sleep, just let us know. That's what all of this is for. And guess what happened? I would tell friends who are passing through Oregon that there's this family that has a place for them. And guess what they do? That's what it's for. <laughs> they would give them a place to be and a place to be refreshed. And they'd give them their ATVs to just go crazy and have fun with their kids out in the middle of nowhere. It's so, they're constantly releasing for the kingdom. And once in a while, you meet people like that. Uh, who are operating in the world as channels of resourcing activity. And, and here's the deal. Totally convinced. I think, I think this is clearly seen through Jesus' teaching. Most of us cannot aspire to that level of freedom. Most of us should probably reject wealth because we understand that it takes a unique kind of person to be free from it. <laughs> and not everyone can do that. Some of us can. 
but ordinarily the things we own tend to end up owning us. We, can, we care deeply about our finances and our stuff, and this is mostly proven by the way we complain about our not having enough finances and stuff, right? I'm, I know I'm always like, oh, what if, we, what if we only had a little? It's like, oh, man, it's like this weird spiral. Um, when my wife and I were first married, just to do a personal story, <laughs> we, we got married here in San Diego, and we lived here in Oceanside uh, in 2000. And uh, our entire budget was 1500 a month, and my wife pulled in a couple hundred bucks on top of that from uh, twir- uh, being a twirling coach. She was a, ma- a majorette instructor. There she is. <laughs> She's hiding. So, uh, so we had like anywhere from, anywhere from 1600 to like 1750 a month coming in. Um, that was it. Like ha- exactly half of that would go to rent on our granny flat in coastal Oceanside, which was graciously given to us by this family in our church. And the other half of that went to like car insurance, car fuel, human fuel, and um, like water bill. And it was done. That was it. It would come in, it would go out every month, and it was super simple. Um, and then we had a baby, and the church I worked for gave me a $300 a month raise to cover whatever having a baby they thought covered. <laughs> so, uh, so that was it. It was and it just, it was simple. It would all come in, and it would all go away, and it would come in again, and it would go away. It was like a life that was normal, like simple. Um, but I eventually transitioned into a more dynamic job when I started creating music and writing songs, and, and, I, and, I, and I realized something. I could actually do things to create more income. Like, you can actually do stuff that makes more stuff. My mind was blown. I could actually go to the store. My wife and I could look at a product on a shelf and consider it an option. We could actually have the option of buying that. That was new. I don't know if you remember that click from, adult, from non-adulting to adulting, and, and you suddenly could make a choice to buy something. It was very, very strange. Um, so I was suddenly also, with that, I was aware of what other people made. And that reminded me of what I couldn't buy. And I noticed a dynamic at work in me that Jesus, again, is way ahead of the curve. Jesus saw it coming. And it's this dynamic, uh, more money and stuff. There's a slide for it. I realize this. Oh, sorry, I keep going. I skipped some stuff. Yeah, more money and stuff, here it is, often leads to more concern for money and stuff, which leads to less contentment with money and stuff. Vicious cycle. It just eats at people. Um, and I realize the opposite is also true. You can flip it around. Less money and stuff often leads to less concern for money and stuff, which leads to more contentment with money and stuff. I really think there's something here for those that are plagued with anxiety. I really do. Jesus is calling us into a level of contentment that is directly linked with what we choose to let go of. I, I, I'm, I, feel, I feel like the Lord is teaching me something even now like that I wasn't prepared to even think through. Um, generally speaking, the more you own, the harder it is to free yourself from it. This is why most of us are totally, I think, I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally unprepared to live out the kind of kingdom-releasing wealth that the, my friends in Oregon had. Um, and right here, the common response is like, oh, sure, if I was like your friends in Oregon, like multi-millionaires, i totally give more away. That's like the common response. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. That's great. It's just not my life. Um, well, let me propose to you an ironclad, age-old test, foolproof, of how you would handle more than you have right now. You ready? If you are not generous with little, you will not be generous with much. <laughs> Every time, period. Uh, perfect example of that. My, I was talking with my wife about who, who do we know that isn't filthy rich, but who is more generous than we could ever imagine. And, and we're talking about who is that? Who's that type of person? And my, my wife didn't even skip a beat. She's like, oh, oh you should have asked me earlier. That's my mom. Like, it's my parents. That's what they've always done. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, oh, well, you know how much they struggled financially in the 80s, during the recession in the 80s. And, and I had heard stories about how her dad would, you know, teach. They didn't have YouTube. 
So he would literally go to Home Depot to open up handyman manuals and learn in the store and remember because he couldn't afford the manual and then go fix people's stuff just to survive. And um, it's a hard time. And during that time, my wife distinctly remembers always having guests in the house, always hospitality, always feeding guests. And if a guest would say, oh, I really like that vase, that, this thing is, this candle is really awesome. Um, and, and, and her mom would log that away. And as a goodbye present at the end of dinner, when the, when the guest would leave the house, she'd have it gift wrapped and she'd send it away. That's just how she lived. Uh, just gave me chills. I just got chicken skin on my arm right now. Um, so, so it's not about status. It's not about how much or how little you have. The key is letting go. A life of letting go. Because if you're not living like your money and possessions are not yours, then you will not live that way if you have more of them. The call to follow Jesus really is that letting go. It's a liberation from the octopus arms of stuff. Of course, it's easier said than done, but the rewards are great. You know, I've said it already. You know what the rewards are? The reward is being able to, being able to receive Jesus' next words, where he says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. So if you're like me and you wake up every morning with this foreboding angst of everything's falling apart today, I know it. It's this gray cloud of like, it's all going south, today's the day. Today's, it's, it's done. This person will come out finally saying they hate me, or that thing that we've been building will crash, or whatever. It's this inordinate irrational fear of losing status, relationships, stuff, or finances. It just gets me in the morning. It gets me in the pit of my stomach. I'm confessing sin right now. This is me. This is where I'm at. Because I'm having the darndest time stepping into Matthew 6, verse 25. Because there's the tentacles of stuff in verses 19 through 21 I'm still wrestling with. But the moment we can say yes to Jesus, together is the truth. We need each other for this. We need the bread and the cup for this. And if you don't know Jesus and you're sitting here and you're like, what is going on? This is insane. <laughs> what, is, what commune is this? <laughs> then, then I totally get it. Totally, 100%. There's Christians thinking the same thing right now in the room. Um, it's, it's, it's not a commune. It's not a crazy organization. It is a call to step into the kind of peace that defies understanding. And it's found at the foot of the cross, the cross where a God who had everything laid aside the perks of being God so that he could enter into scorn and be shamed and mocked and then pierced, whipped, and executed and stripped of everything so that he might bring sons and daughters to the table of a God who made everything. So, so he... So the disadvantage Jesus experienced is far beyond any disadvantage any of us could experience. God disadvantaged himself to death, literally, so that we might be brought into life. And when we say, okay, I believe that, I believe in you, God, and now I follow you to the cross. Jesus said, whoever desires to follow me, let him deny him or herself, Take up that same cross and say, I'm in it to the end with you, Jesus. I believe with you is peace. You're the prince of peace. You're the solution to my anxiety. And when you say, don't store up wealth on earth, I'll just take you at your word. I'll take you at your word that heavenly treasure, which is the disadvantaging of self or the advantage of the other. Heavenly treasure is filling the hungry with the extra food you have. That's the heavenly treasure. Storing your stuff in the belly of someone who has nothing. So I'll believe you as I take up my cross and follow you. And there are practical ways that Benji and Jen have worked really hard to network with. I don't know the names of all the organizations. He's going to name them. But there's these practical partnerships with organizations that specifically target places of deepest pain and brokenness in San Diego and abroad. Preemptive Love is one of them. We did that thing, downtown, uh, downtown Encinitas, that uh, fundraiser thing right before launch. It's Beautiful and powerful heard stories of people's lives being transformed by advantaged Christians disadvantaging themselves 
for the sake of human dignity and worth and the gospel reaching places of brokenness far away. This is what God wants us to be. This is what he calls us to do. So that's it. We're going to sing. Um, and we're going to consider it. This is, again, this is not like guilt trip night. It's not what this is. Jesus did, dealt with the guilt already. Like the guilt and the shame are gone. Uh, Jesus bore them on the cross. This is us, once again, every, like every Sunday, saying yes to God. Saying yes to God might be saying less to you. <laughs> uh, maybe God's asking us to take on just one thing. Just take on some aspect of lessness for the sake of the other. I know for me, I didn't share this at the last service, but it was, it, it was a garage sale that got me. <laughs> like, uh, it was a horrible experience. Uh, we, I was super excited to like minimize and be all hip and minimalistic or whatever and just like sell everything and go bare bones. And I sold one too many things that I didn't realize I valued. I sold this amp from like 1973. And I'm a musician. And as I let the amp go, the dude, he was an elementary school music teacher, so I feel kind of good about it. But, but I sold it for like less than 10% of what I could have got it for on eBay. Um, and I felt really good about it. But then afterwards, the dollar signs came in. I could have, should have got what it's worth. And I'm a musician. Who am I? I'm never going to make another record again. I'm nothing. <laughs> like this whole identity crisis just, just wrecked me. I'm like, I'm done. I'm just, I'm just like a Bible guy now. I'm not a music guy anymore. And, uh, and then Satan's like, you're right. You're horrible. And he, the enemy, the devil, actually came in and capitalized on my relentless identity issues that I had with my stuff. And I just think it's as simple as saying yes to God tonight and just less to yourself in very practical ways. Again, not like this guilt trip you need to put on yourself at all. Like, go get a cup of coffee tomorrow, whatever. <laughs> like, um, but practice the way of Jesus is to store up treasures in heaven, Period. And I'm going to read one verse that's a parable. Jesus actually tells us a one-verse parable in Matthew 13. Maybe you'll get to it in a couple months. But uh, I'm going to read this. I'm going to let this verse lead us into worship. Just let Jesus' word pictures light your mind on fire. That's what the parables are designed to do. So you're ready for this. Holy Spirit, come. Come as we read. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then, in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. 